back to another episode of Friends of the Vine Wine Podcast. So, episode 40. This is with David from Tantalus Vineyards. He is the general manager and winemaker. Tantalus is very famous for their Riesling. It is uh, one of the best Rieslings in BC, one of the best Rieslings in the Okanagan. And for those of you who aren't too familiar with British Columbia wine landscape, he goes into a lot of conversation about Okanagan viticulture and the push towards sub-appellations in the, the Okanagan wine scene talks about the harvest for this year for 2019 and goes into a bit about his background he's uh, born in Canada and raised in New Zealand he got his start down in New Zealand and Australia went to winemaking school down in New Zealand and uh, traveled around the world making wine in Burgundy making wine in Oregon making wine down in Australia and New Zealand and finally settled about 10 years ago here in the Okanagan. So great chat with him. And another thing I wanted to mention was we are just over 10,000 total listens for the show. And I really am grateful and blessed that so many of you guys listen to the show and, and enjoy the content. And I actually want to do a small giveaway for those of you who know my epiphany wine it'll be very easy basically about every pretty much every second show i mention what was my epiphany wine and i actually want to give that away give one of the bottles that i have uh, left of that wine so all you need to do is send me an email friends of the vine podcast at gmail.com and just mention what is my epiphany wine it's pretty much in most of the episodes so it shouldn't be that hard send it to me and i will draw it uh, at the end of uh closer to the end of december i'll give it a couple weeks anyway let's get on with this episode david and i actually start this episode by talking about how the 2019 harvest is going let's get right into it Yeah, it's a really interesting year. It's starting to shape up to be one of my favourite years that I've been a part of. This is the um, 11th uh, vintage that I'll be on site here. Pretty warm, uh, you know, middle piece of the year got it got us through, um, but really late bud break, and then you know after a pretty horrendous winter, so a lot of. Uh, a lot of secondary and tertiary shoots coming out and not as many primary shoots so it means the crops a little lower but the crop that's out there is awesome it's nice. delicious yeah. we're picking um, rosé at 19 bricks with full flavor usually you're 21 before that comes um, so flavor at low sugar um, very good acid retention very very good to good it's not like excellent there some of the pinots are starting to drop a bit more acid at low breaks but um yeah i mean i'm pretty pretty damn excited to be honest i just can't wait to actually get it off the vine and get it in the tanks but you know looking at historical records i mean 
we're still average or even slightly ahead of average over the 10 years that I've been here. Um, for example, you know, 2011, I didn't pick a grape until October 17th. Mm. So we're still a few weeks away from that. So <clears throat> I think we just got used to the 15, 16, 17, 18 all being, you know, most of the work's done in September. But if you look before that, it's sort of right at the end of September and then October's the big month. So this is sort of shaping up to be like that. I think, you know, with the, the trends in wine as they are, um, people are looking for slightly lower alcohol, you know, more balance, more acidity, um, ageability, wines that go with food, um, which are all the sort of boxes that we've always tried to tick. But uh, being able to make a rosé at 12% alcohol and, you know, an unoaked Chardonnay at around the same, if not even less, 11 and f- 11 5, we're starting to talk true Chablis or... Yeah. Burgundian numbers which um, you know ultimately we have to make those decisions based on the flavor of the grapes and certainly in a when you get these big heat spikes like we sometimes do in the Okanagan that's just not possible but this year it's gone cool enough early enough that we can hang the grapes for quite a while and not really get that sugar jump and therefore the high potential alcohol so yeah pretty pretty exciting. I was getting into Australian wines for a while and and it's like these big 14, 15s and 16s. Yeah, oh like, yeah. I want to have more than one glass. Like. Yeah. Well, there's a trend in Australia right now too to um, to go back to what they were doing in the early 90s. So, you know, when you, when you look back at uh, the Barossa Valley, um, which is sort of the biggest name, you know, in, in, in South Australia, there's obviously lots of other great regions around there, but... The Barossa trend sort of came along with the parkerization of wine in the in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s. And ben Glatzer and those guys making these huge uh, extracted big Shirazes at that 15, 16 alcohol mark. And that, the pendulum swung really hard that way. And now you're seeing the, new, the younger generation, you know, the 25 to 35 year old winemakers stepping in and going we don't want to make those we don't want to drink those so they're now picking earlier with acidity and you're seeing these wonderful sort of juicy wines at 13 percent alcohol coming out of that region that was suddenly became known for these 15 percent alcohol beasts but when you go back into some of the more prominent uh, names like Henschke or um, E&E Black Pepper Shiraz those kinds of wines that are kind of iconic out of that um out of that region the you know the late 80s early 90s wines are delicious right now i mean they have held so so well but they're at 13 percent alcohol and they have acidity and they're not these big bruises and then when you slip into the mid 2000s the alcohol's 14.5 at minimum and they haven't held on as well i'd rather drink a you know the 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 early 90s are drinking better than the and like they're younger than the mid-2000s from that region. So you've seen that pendulum swing one way and now it's coming back the other way, which is nice to see. I was born in Canada. Through, through luck of, uh, you know, of, of the universe, so to speak, I, uh, I have a Canadian passport as well, so it was quite easy for me to end up here. Um, but yeah, I did all my training in New Zealand and then... Uh, did the sort of classic thing that a lot of winemakers do and, and should really do if they're going to become good winemakers is uh, spend a, a fair few years living out of a suitcase, wandering the world, sort of looking for, for mentors in a way and get, trying to learn uh, off, off really good established winemakers. Do the seller thing. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I was pretty picky with who I wanted to work with. I, I was really focused on making sure that I worked for high quality producers and I never sort of took that, you know, higher paid but huge factory style wine job. Um, I always, I, I'd take the lower pay for the higher quality uh, producer every time and, and that's ended up serving me very well to, to land where I am now. Yeah. So about a decade now at Tantalus. Yep. Yeah, this will be my 11th harvest, yeah. Nice. It's known for, to me, it's known for your, for the Rieslings. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those established brands in the Okanagan. And you've been at the helm for 10 years now. So how did it get to the point where it's become this, I guess you could say mm-hmm. iconic, you know, like it's in that, it's in that echelon where people know the name right away. Yeah. They know, they yeah. know the Riesling right away. Yeah, which is good. I mean, I think the <clears throat> what what really helped us was right at the start, the f- very first vintage that was made by a friend of mine, Matt Holmes, which is one of the other reasons I ended up here because Matt was leaving to go back to Australia and they needed someone to come in and take his place. But he made the 2005 uh, Riesling, which at that stage only came off the old vines, the 1978 plantings. Everything else was getting planted out around it. Um, and... Jancis Robinson came through and did a Canadian tasting and um, she basically declared that the Tantalus Riesling was her favourite wine she tried in Canada and that was the first vintage of Tantalus so that really uh, really put us on the map. That's a great great person to have promoting. Yeah exactly and then every year she comes back and we're just we're one of her favourites she likes high acid she loves Riesling and we we tick both those boxes so She's, uh, yeah, she's been a great asset for sure uh, to us. So, you know, that sort of established us as the Riesling guys because before that, Riesling here was just sort of that afterthought, sweet kind of wine that the tourists will buy as opposed to a serious, ageable, you know, world-class wine. And so I think because we did that with Riesling, everyone thought we were crazy. We weren't making Pinot Gris, you know, we're just making Riesling at that stage. Um, because we did that and put, a, put ourselves out there, um, that really made a splash. Back then we were, we were, I think it was number 92 or 93 winery, you know, so we were the new kids on the block, but there wasn't 20 or 30 other new wineries like there is every year, it seems now. Um, so it's a, I would say it's an easier space back then to come into than it is now. Then, uh, then you know, fast forward to me taking over in 2009, I was brought on to uh, bring the Chardonnay program and the Pinot program into... There was a little bit of Pinot being made off here, but really it was mainly Riesling and then a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, and so, yeah, it's been my job over the last decade to build all of those up. So now we have three really strong legs of the company being Pinot Noir, Chardonnay and Riesling. Riesling's still our largest skew, but not by much anymore. Um, but it's the the one that gets the most distribution. It's the one that's at uh, state dinners and, you know, in consulates all around the world and things like that. Our Pinot occasionally gets a, gets a look in at that as well. Um, but... Yeah, I, I think my uh, my role over the the last decade has to be trying to build this company sustainably, um, and sustainability to me is uh, and to, to the company is is one of uh, 
not just looking, okay, we're an organic uh, producer, um, therefore we're great, which kind of sometimes seems to be the attitude. Well, we, we grow organically, so we're awesome. Yeah, but where does your glass come from and what happens to your cardboard and where does your wastewater go and how, how's your human resource management and all of these kinds of things need to come into consideration when you're looking at sustainability yeah. and how do you grow? What is your growth? There's, there are so many companies in BC that have made way too much wine and are currently sitting on a lot of inventory and so they claim sellouts and they, you know there's all these tech sales techniques to try and garner interest but the fact of the matter is they got warehouses full of wine and so for, for us it's always trying to keep that in mind make sure that we make the right amount of wine to always service you know the people that uh, that are already our fans and make sure that we don't run out you know at the wrong times of year and and that's why we're a very strong restaurant brand because we've always managed our inventory correctly so we don't uh, we don't screw over the sommeliers the amount of stories i hear from songs where they put a wine on by the glass and then halfway through the tenure of that wine on the list the winery's got no more supply for them because they don't run their inventory properly yeah. and so I think a lot of those kinds of factors have made Tantalus what it is because we make really good wine. We make wine off a great site that has been a great site for long before it was Tantalus. So wonderful piece of land, great team that we've built here that have been here for a long time, um, which all know the place inside and out and know their job roles really well, which, which means that we can all have time off and weekends and it's usually pretty calm around here now there's not a lot of uh, fluster yeah. which I see in a lot of other places because we've all consciously gone to do that but that means that when we host people when we uh, w whatever we do uh, within our operations it, it comes from that and it comes from the top the owner is a very calm uh, thoughtful man and doesn't have knee-jerk reactions to things and no, yeah, and if it comes from myself at the, at the top as GM and and the owner being those those kinds of people, then that filters down to the rest of the team. Um, you know, having autonomy in their job, having real satisfaction, and I think that floats right through to Tantalus being what it is and having the reputation that it does. Served at the state dinners, and I know that the logo is also iconic as well. Yeah, that, for sure. That helps as well. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we set out to make it a Pacific Northwest look, so every wine gets a different mask, but um, it's all still a very uniform look to, to each wine. You can tell it's a Tantalus wine from a long way off, which, which we really like. We, it's not a label that we're going to need to change and revamp and do another big marketing campaign or anything. I mean, it's kind of a timeless look as well. Um, when I look around the world at iconic brands in the wine industry, um, the Stags Leaps, the Henschkes, the Penfolds, those kinds of things, they haven't changed since, since the 50s. They've, they're, they're very timeless looks. And, and those so, jump out as a consumer, those jump out at you as well on, on if you're in the liquor store. Yeah, that's gonna jump out. Uh, that kind of like Penfold's like classic look. 
Yeah, yeah, for, uh, at, at the purchase level, absolutely. Yeah, the purchase level, they might, just, yeah. they might just pique their curiosity or whatever, if they know nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Or they've seen it enough and, you know, it's not like yeah. every three years there's a new branding to the to what we're doing. So, yeah, yeah oh, I've seen that before. I've seen that. I don't even know where I've seen that before. And it might have been that they saw a bottle go out at Hawksworth when they were dining there two months ago and it's just caught their eye and subconsciously they associate that with quality. Um so yeah, having having that label for sure helps. Having good juice in the bottle, and then um, you know, having good contacts at the at, at that level of uh, uh, government is is also important. Janet Dorzinski is a great a great asset with uh, to us. She's a phenomenal woman who's I mean personal friends with the owner, but also does a really really good job with uh, yeah, out of Ottawa with sort of curating the the wine program for the government um so all of those factors mean that we uh that we are featured quite a lot um when when anything important is going down with uh, with canada and diplomats and all sorts of things like that we're in we're in the cellars of a lot of the canadian embassies around the world and i know that that makes the uh, the owner of tantalus eric uh, very proud makes me very proud too you know, back, back in the day when Quailsgate and Cedar Creek and, and Mission Hill were getting started, there were, there were some really good wines made in those mid-90s eras. So, um, <clears throat> But on any sort of level where there's more than a couple of companies and, you know, the little guys are getting good as well, you know, you had the Blue Mountains as their, as an outlier and, you know, a few, a few things like that. But really, it's only the last 15 years where you've seen that explosion of, of high quality across many companies. And um, uh, to me, we're just a, such a young, burgeoning region. And yeah, yeah. that's kind of what drew me here. I mean, I, I, I definitely came here with the attitude that I'd be here for a couple of years in my first winemaking role. And then I'd go back home where real wine was made. I, I truly turned up with that attitude. And... Um, <clears throat> now I've been here a decade and I'll, I'll be here for my career. I mean, I, I truly believe that um, of all the places that I've made wine, I've, I've been uh, been in some very good wineries and some very interesting areas in, in Burgundy and uh, Oregon, down in, down in Australia and New Zealand as well. But I, I think the wines from around here off these granite-based soils with a little bit of limestone, they, they hold a tension and a minerality that, are, that is world-class. And, uh, you know, a lot of the best blocks are still just starting to think about being 10 years old, you know. I mean, they, they, we're, we're a very young region, so when those vines are 40 years old, so the end of my career, we're going we're to see some absolutely world-class wines. And we'll be able to justify, justify some pretty high prices at that stage. Um, there are people already trying to do that, and um, I, I love it because it sets an umbrella that I can operate under. Um, but the reality is that <clears throat> it's going to take another decade or two before those kinds of things are really justified. 40-year-old vines, 50-year-old vines, in the right hands, the right vintage, I, I think we can make uh, as good a wine as anywhere in the world. Appalachian push and stuff that in the last few mm-hmm. years that kind of kind of started up and uh, it's interesting now to to see how they're trying to really specify different regions and, and the different terroirs of the different areas and stuff. And I always wonder whether they're going to ever push the idea of well, this area really grows good Merlot or good Syrah or whatever. Mm-hmm. You're you're stuck with that kind of thing. Do you think it'll go that way, or do you think it'll always be? 
you as a winemaker making the decision, this area grows at the best, but we're not obligated to grow this grape in that area. You know what I mean? Like uh, right, right. I I, yeah. I know what you know what you're asking. So uh, I'm uh, a big part of our appellation. Uh, that's going on right now, our, our application for our appellation for Southeast Kelowna Slopes. So it's been something that we've been working on over the last few months quite uh, quite intensively. The, the All of that has been discussed. I think what we're trying to do, and, and it seems like the others that have already got these sub-appellations have acted um, kind of in good faith, if you will, with the idea that we're trying to set it up for generations to come. So if we if we can do this right the first time, as far as carving up the land and what it means, that's kind of our generation's job. I think it's gonna be the next generation that once there's proof of concept that, okay, this actually does work, um, right, the, the best Pinot right now is coming from OK Falls and it's coming from Southeast Kelowna. Now, I think that's already proven. The last five years, the, the wines that perform the best at shows, the wines that are reaching the highest prices in Pinot Noir come from two pretty specific areas. You can kind of skip Naramata. There's not a lot of great Pinot growing on Naramata. There's a lot of very good and fair Pinot there, but I haven't seen or tasted anything quite as compelling as Pinot's out of Okanagan Falls and out of this area in the southeast Kelowna. And I'm more excited about Lake Country and you know, on the pink feldspar granites there than, than I am about the clays in Naramata. However, Merlot on clays, great. I think some of the best Merlot in, in BC comes off Naramata because yeah. it's not quite as hot. It's not on the desert sands in the Black Sage. Everyone talks about Black Sage, Merlot, blah, blah, blah. I think yeah. that's the most boring red wine that's made in the province. And that's no insult to any individual. I just think Black Sage Merlot is pretty bloody boring. Yeah. And, you know, the, the Samuka means more exciting. Golden Mile on the other side is more exciting. But the beach sands, nah, yeah. just makes commodity big red wine. Um, would you classify Summerland and Okay Falls? <coughs> would you, because Summerland's Pinot, I'm thinking like TH wines, mm-hmm. but I don't know where he gets his fruit from for, for his Pinot. I know he's out of Summerland, but. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say uh, Tyler's Pinot. Um, I don't. I don't actually know where he's getting his fruit at the moment. Like he, I know he's had a few different sources. Yeah, yeah. His is a very stylistic wine, right. um, so he's gone for that lighter, juicier, yeah. easier style, which which is delicious for a couple of years. But the ageability on those wines, um, you know, over five to seven to ten years, I think I think will be lacking. And that's that's no dig. That's right. I, I drink his Pinot. Well, and then and fresh, yeah, fresh, fresh, fresh easy drinking, drinking straight to market wines. Um, I think when you uh, over the dec- over the next couple of decades, the the proof of it being a world class region, one of those things has to be ageability. Mm. And I think the most ageable uh, structured wines come from here in OK Falls as well. When, when we're just talking Pinot. Yeah. Um, so going back to the terroir question and the, and the Appalachian question, what we are doing in this current generation is splitting the land up and saying, geographically, this makes sense. Here's a sub-Appalachian based on uh, aspect, topography, um, et cetera, et cetera, natural boundaries. I think it will be 
the, you know, the end of my career and the next generation that comes behind us is job to go, okay, it's proven that Southeast Kelowna makes some of the best ageable, you know, we're drinking Pinots that were made 20 years ago and they're still delicious. There's something here. It makes sense to grow more Pinot here. And then I, I don't see in the, you know, Canadians are too polite to tell each other exactly what they have to do. So I don't see them suddenly saying, right, you have to pull out all your Gewürztraminer and only plant Pinot. I, I think that's a long way off. That's several generations away before something like that would happen. But I think that the smart farmer seeing his guy next door get 70 bucks a bottle for Pinot while he's struggling away at $20 Gewürz, I think that naturally that that market will create those kinds of things where you'll see more and more Chardonnay, Pinot and Riesling growing here and, and in OK Falls and then you'll see less growing in Naramata and you'll see more Merlot and Albarino and other, other interesting varieties as they find what, what truly makes the best wines in their region. But that's, that, that's going to take decades. Called the Desert Island wine. Oh yeah. Where it's like you're stuck on a desert island. Like, is it riesling, or is it is there something that you're? Um, you know, like sometimes it's that first one of the first. Like for me, it's pinot. Like pinot's my. Everyone listens to my. my mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I always talk about pinot all the time. Yeah, yeah. But is there one for you that you're like? I can't so I. A grape variety that I, so I would say I drink more Chardonnay and Pinot than anything else, um, depending on your mood of white or red, but uh, I'd say my ultimate, yeah, I mean I like a lot of different things, right? it's a hard question, um, only allowed one grape variety, I'd take Chardonnay, because it can make bubbles, it can make Chablis style, it can make those lovely rich oaky styles, so I'd if I could only drink one one variety for the rest, it would be Chardonnay. You can make a bunch of different things. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah, and have have some variety. I can make a skin contact orangey kind of wine. Right. You know, yeah. you can do a lot with Chardonnay. Yeah. It's kind of a little bit of a winemaker's canvas, but but not not necessarily for winemaking, but just for the diversity of of Chardonnay around uh, around the planet. I, I find myself drinking a lot more Chardonnay lately. Yeah. A year ago, I probably would have answered Riesling. I mean, I still have a massive love for Riesling. Yeah. Um, well, the one is one too, Chardonnay, mm-hmm. because it's always had that rap as like the big kind of the California Chardonnay in the back in the day, right? The mm-hmm. But it's so versatile that you can do. It's not just that. Yeah, I mean, I would say I drink Chardonnay from everywhere but California. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I do drink the occasional Californian with uh, with my boss because he's got a fondness for that that richness. But uh, you know, I, I prefer the the cooler climate Chardonnays from those areas too. So you know, going out into the Sonoma Coast and Flowers and uh, Hansel's wines and those those kinds of wines are, are more Burgundian than oh, they are Californian. Shelly yeah. Um, I, I prefer that high acidity, that tension, that minerality, a little bit of flinty reduction. I really like the gun flint kind of um, gun smoke kind of Chardonnays. So yeah, I mean, I I am drinking more Chardonnay than Riesling at the moment, and that may flip flop and change in a year or two. I have a cellar full of Riesling, but I also find that I really like Chardonnay at about five to seven years old, and I like Riesling at twenty years old. So. I keep a lot of the Riesling around more than the Chardonnay and slug a lot of Chardonnay. I think we're going to leave it there for now. Thanks for listening. For more wine conversation and podcast updates, you can follow us on Instagram at Ian's Wine Truths. Check out our website for 
great photos of our guests. Friendsofthevine.podbean.com Take care. Have a glass for me.